Welcome, welcome. If you have a Bible, we are going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 25. Now, just to explain momentarily what I'm going to do, I'm going to skip the first half of verse 1. Samuel is, Samuel is dead. There, everyone knows now. We're going to come back to that later. That's a, it's an odd detail to just drop right in there. This is why scripture is so hard to break down into preachable parts. <laughs> we are not going to forget that, though. He died. We're going to come back to that. The other thing is uh, we're actually going to cover chapter 25 um, down until, I'm just going to give it away, Nabal dies. Um, the fact that David marries Abigail, we're going to leave till next week. Um, so today we're just going to be looking at the fact that the savior of uh, Nabal's house is his wife and what that means for us. We're going to look at feminine fortitude, much like Esther, who says, you know, if I die, I die. I'm going before the king. Uh, Abigail is a, has a great deal of feminine fortitude, and it looks very different than ma- um, male fortitude. And I, I think um, it's very important in the age in which we live to uh, see the distinction. See, what is it that makes female f- uh, feminine fortitude so glorious and unique and different than male fortitude? So before we open the word of God, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much uh, for the word of God, for opening it to us this morning. We pray that you give us an understanding heart and mind, that you grip our imagination and our reason, Lord, that we might draw nearer to you, that we might understand you better, that we might love you more. We thank you and we praise you for your ministry to us. We thank you for this time to gather together. We thank you for this ark in the midst of um, the flood. We thank you, Lord God, for being a bulwark and a fortress for us. And we pray, Lord God, that uh, we would feast now in your presence. We thank you and we praise you and amen. Now, chapter 25 is actually sandwiched in between two conflicts with Saul. Uh, This is something that, um, if you remember the Mark series, we were used to there. What they do is they have three stories that are very similar, um, but the one in the middle, there's a difference. So here we have chapter 24. You have David taking on Saul. In this particular story, we have David taking on Nabal. And then in the next chapter, we have David again taking on Saul. So so what, what the authors want us to do is see the similarities and differences in this chapter and compare it to the other two chapters so that we understand those stories better. Uh, It's called the Markin sandwich. That's what they call it in the Gospel of Mark. It always drops in a similar story with a little bit of difference right in the middle, and it seems random, but it's actually not. It helps you understand everything else that's going on. And so this little story here in this massive conflict between David and Saul, this story is supposed to help, help us understand the grander themes, the bigger ideas. Now, the Lord defends his children, and he curses those who curse us. He does. And David has a hard time remembering this. And so God wants to teach him again. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. So don't waste your time cursing people. (laughs) I will curse them. And I will curse them bigger and better than you can. Trust me. And and that's what the story is all about. Now, one-third, I'm going to go back and review something from last time. One-third of the 80 or so uses of the words good and evil in 1 Samuel are found in these chapters, chapters 24 through 26. Now, at, at times, the two words are used in combination, as in 1 Samuel 25, 21. This is what David said, Nabal has returned me evil for good. Evil and good. Good and evil. Now, in Gedi is where David has been hiding. It's an oasis near the Dead Sea with a perennial spring. In Gedi is a kind of garden. It's an oasis. Now, if you take these two ideas and put them together, David is struggling with good and evil in a garden. 
Now, typologically, the connection here is to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Eden, back in Genesis 2-3. The Edenic shadow makes David's temptations in the wilderness Edemic temptations. Okay? The, he is a new kind of man, struggling like Adam struggled in the garden, like Jesus will struggle on earth. That's what we, this is what the authors want us to be thinking about, these kind of grand themes of scripture as we look at this story. Now, in chapters 24 and 26, David is tempted to seize the forbidden fruit and take a juicy bite. He wants the throne, and he's tempted in those two chapters to take the throne, to grasp after the throne of God. God has promised it to him, but he does not yet have it. And so the question, again and again, is, is David going to wait for God to give it to him, or is he going to take it himself? Now, one of David's chief qualifications for the throne is worked out in these chapters as he resists repeated temptations. Readers have long known that David is a man after Yahweh's own heart. That's what we're told in 1 Samuel 13, 14. And chapters 24 through 26 show that the man after Yahweh's own heart responds to adversity differently than other men. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. When he was reviled, that is Jesus, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's the heart of God. He does not revile those who revile him. When he suffers, he does not threaten, and he continues entrusting himself to the Lord. Now, is that what, is, is that what David's going to do? Is that what he's going to do? That's what he's tempted with. Are you going to take vengeance into your own hands? Are you going to take your honor in your own hands? Are you going to fight your battles for yourself, or are you going to let the Lord do it? Now, after refusing to grasp the throne by killing Saul in chapter 24, this chapter's Edenic and Edemic themes are a little different. It's a struggle over food and brides and snakes, just like the Garden of Eden. Nabal is a snake. Will David become a snake too to defeat the snake? Or will he grasp after the food that's denied him? Will David protect or devour the bride? How should Eve deal with snakes? <laughs> right now, ladies, I'm just going to go ahead and typologically call you all Eves. You come up against some snakes from time to time, correct? Now, how is it that God wants you to fight them? How is a lady supposed to fight a snake? Like a man does? Right? Now, why does that bother us? <laughs> as soon as I say that, even I'm a little bothered by it. Why does there have to be a difference, Mike? Why can't we all just fight the same snakes the same way? Well, it's because it's not, I mean, God designed a world in which his glory is seen in the differences between men and women. And so everything that men and women do is different. Amen. We love the difference. We here at Redeemer are all about the difference. <laughs> what makes my wife not me is awesome. <laughs> and, and what I want her to know, what I want all of you ladies to know, what I want you men to know and your expectations of the ladies in this room is how is it that they're supposed to kill snakes? Because it's kind of like we're living in snakes on a plane right now. There are snakes everywhere, and they're big, and they're nasty, and I'm stomping on their heads, and my wife has got to be also fighting them, but it's, it looks different than my way of fighting them, and that's what the story is, is largely about. Now, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8, but I've paraphrased it a little bit, so if you're following along, it's, I, I kind of cut some little unnecessary bits out for our story today, so once I get about halfway through, you'll see that I'm going verbatim. But just, this is what the word of God says. This is the story that we are entering into. And there was a man who was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats that he was shearing in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. 
The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved, a Calabite. So David sent ten young men, instructing them, Go up to Carmel, to Nabal, and greet him in my name, saying, Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. Now only after being told how rich this guy is are we told his name. Now what do you think that means? We're told about his possessions before we're told about his name. What is the defining feature of, of this man? Right? If you want to become a snake, what, what we're going to do is we're going to tear apart Nabal's poor little life, and we're going to see how it is a man becomes a snake. Are your possessions the thing that are the identifying markers about you, or is your name? Right? This is the part for the gentleman. What makes you you? Your name or your stuff? Now, Nabal means fool. Now, parents, okay, let's be very careful about what we name our children, Okay. Um, what, what I could not figure out, and what's very interesting is, is this a name that they gave him later, or was this actually what his mom and dad called him? <laughs> because the word in Hebrew means fool, right? Now, who has a baby boy and says, you know what we're going to name this kid? Fool. <laughs> I wonder what he's going to become. <laughs> and, and the propheticness of, of naming, this is why my, my wife and I are very careful about our names. Uh, our sons have very regal names. You know, Titus, Constantine, Athanasius, Kloss is my oldest boy's name. Because I, I thought of this. You know what I don't want to name him as fool? I'm going to name him after kings and godly men, and hopefully he'll become kingly and godly. <laughs> Just Nabal. I mean, it was like from the, from the crib. The guy had an upward battle. Now, biblically, I want, uh, this is very important for us. We use the word foolish, and we have to be very careful with that word. Because when we usually say a fool, we usually mean a man who just isn't very wise, a man who's kind of an idiot. But that's not actually what the, the Bible means by fool. Foolishness is not merely a matter of lacking wisdom or sense, but contains a moral element. This is what it says in Isaiah 32.6. For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity, to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the word, to leave the uh, craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. Well, first off, okay, a fool is not simply somebody who's not wise. He's wicked. And doesn't that describe Nabal to a T? He's going to deprive David of food. He's going to deprive him of drink. He is doing iniquity in his heart. We're going to find out later while Abigail is saving his bacon, he's getting hammered because he is a fool. And this is what a fool is. So be very careful when you use this word. Jesus tried to correct this problem. We call people fools, and we shouldn't, unless they really are fools, unless they really are thoroughgoing, wicked, evil men. It's, it's not a small word, the word fool. A Nabal does not ne- merely lack manners. He is spiritually and morally and social uh, uh, inept. He, he's a total wreck. He's a train wreck. Now, as the story progresses, remember that Nabal is not a man who occasionally acts foolishly. Okay? He's not a man who just is struggling manfully with his besetting sins. As we go, and I promote the fact that wives like Abigail ought to defy tyrants like Nabal, what I don't want the ladies to do is to go home and see her husband doing something moderately or fairly foolish and assume that he's a Nabal that you have to then oppose. Okay? Is everyone with me? Because <laughs> sometimes the wrong people take the wrong lesson from the wrong verse. 
Okay? Nabal is, thorough, is a thoroughgoing pagan. He is wicked. He ought to be defied by everybody. Now, most husbands are, can act foolishly, but most husbands are not Nabals. Mostly. Now, the name and the description of the man form a kind of bracket around the details of his very attractive wife, Abigail, whose name means my father is joyous. She's the kind of daughter who makes her father joyous and whose beauty is more than skin deep. While Nabal is evil, she is of good understanding. Now, David's messengers bring David's salutations of peace and prosperity upon Nabal's house, upon everything that he owns. It's a conventional way of greeting people, but it means more than that. What I like about this is there's kind of a threat there. Oh, may you continue to prosper, right? Now pony up some food, <laughs> right? And, and what happens? He doesn't pony up the food, and he's not going to continue to prosper because David is going to wipe him off the face of the earth. And so what I like about David is there's always more going on in what he says than it appears. He is, in one sense, threatening him a little bit. Um, I read a lot about this idea that David has some sort of racketeering thing going on here where he's like, he's the muscle, and he's here to, like, collect money because he's been protecting the bodega or something. It's very weird. Um, it's very odd how we take modern ideas and force them onto the Bible, okay? He's not a gangster living in the wilderness who, you know, if you pay him enough money, he's going to make sure nobody steals cars off your lot. It's not that kind of thing. He is living in the wilderness, and while he's out there, he's been doing the things a king ought to do, and one of those things is protecting the people of Israel. So he has protected Nabal and his household, and because of that, he thinks that he deserves a little bit of food. And the, and the word of God says what? Don't muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain. He, he's done the work. He's protected your house. You ought to feed him. And, and what we're going to see is how little Nabal thinks of the law of God. Okay, that's crucial. He's a fool because he hates God's law. Nabal can afford to be generous. Now, Eastern hospitality, as well as Israelite law, demands that he is so. Sheep shearing was traditionally celebrated by feasting. It's, it's a lot like harvest party. When you get all the sheep together and you see how much wool you've gathered and you see how rich you're going to be, what you do is you throw a big party. You're celebrating what God has done for you. And the law of God is very specific about when you're throwing these kinds of parties. In Nehemiah 8.10, we read this. Then God said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portion to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Okay? This, is, this is an echo of, of the law in Deuteronomy. When you have a party and you're celebrating the goodness of God, when you get that Christmas bonus, you're supposed to think of somebody who doesn't have a Christmas bonus and share it with them. Right? If you're going to shear the sheep and you're going to eat some steaks and celebrate with wine and have a big party, you include the people who have nothing. Now, not only has David been protecting Nabal's stuff and deserves a little something, <laughs> he has nothing, and, and, and the law of God demands that when you have an abundance, you share it. That's the expectation. And we're going to see that Nabal is not just a little unwise. He is a wicked man who hates God's law. He hates hospitality. He hates what his wealth demands of him. Because it is true, God gives some people more so that they will share it. That's the idea. Okay, and what we're going to find out is that Nabal's spirit is not nearly as rich as his wallet. We go on. In, in chapter 25, verses 9 through 13, Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men? Who, I, who come from I do not know where. 
David's young men turned away and came back and told David all this. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. Every man of them strapped on his sword. And David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up with David. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) The posse is coming. Nabal has no attention of adopting the son of Jesse. This is an insult he uses. It's something Saul also said earlier in chapter 20. Who is the son of Jesse? Well, he's your son, Saul, because you gave, you gave him your daughter, Mary, so therefore he's your son-in-law. He's your son. And, and Nabal's doing something similar. He's trying to make it seem like he's a nobody, the son of Jesse, the son of nobody. I, I don't know where he came from. I don't know who he is. Why is he coming after my stuff? Well, everybody knows who David is. Everybody. So Nabal is playing stupid, and he's playing stupid because he's greedy. He's playing stupid because he's selfish. He knows perfectly well who David is. He knows what he owes David. Now, stubbornly, Nabal refuses to see that David, though a fugitive, was a bulwark against harm, the Lord's anointed, and a good king. Now, this is another thing about Nabal. He hates God's law, but he also has, has an inability to give credit where credit is due. Okay, we're going to find out, right? Think, this guy, as we, the story goes, why do you think this guy is rich? Right? It seems like most rich people are kind of this idiotic, doesn't it? Well, it, it, but if you follow Proverbs 31... Right? The, 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 the wife that the Lord gives you, if she is wise and prudent, and if you read Proverbs 31, she is a woman who makes you rich. I, I would argue that this guy is not rich because he's smart at, and he knows what stocks to buy or he works hard at his job. I would, I would argue that he is rich because his wife is wise and good. And, and, and we're going to see, he has an, a grave inability to give credit where credit is due. He doesn't credit his wife. He's not crediting David for what David has done for him. He's a living embodiment of Proverbs 18.2. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Proverbs 18.7 as well. A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. Nabals are always unobservant, they're always unhospitable, they are always ungrateful. Now, men, if you want to be a Nabal, here's what you got to do. Be unhospitable, be unobservant, and be ungrateful. Okay, that's the recipe. David was entitled to a share of the feast, whether he had protected Nabal's property or not, and Nabal refuses. He refuses to hear a report from his men about David. He refuses to take the law of God seriously. He refuses to to open his hand in any way. Now, in a single verse, Nabal managed to use first-person pronouns eight times. That's actually hard to do. Right? Try to use <laughs> a first-person pronoun eight times in one sentence. Like a spoiled little child, you can almost hear it. Nabal could only speak of what was his. He says, my bread, my water, my meat, my shearers, I take, I slaughter, I give, I... He's what Dean used to affectionately call a me monster. Me, 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 me. His, re, his refusal to help David is full of typology. And this is how the word of God works. God wants you to read these stories and, and recognize these characters in your life. And so what he does is he, layer, he adds layer upon layer upon layer upon layer so you recognize who it is that these characters in the Bible are so that you can learn to recognize who the characters in your life are and the character you are. <laughs> Nobody thinks he's Nabal. But somebody in this room is, I'm sure. Right? They, are, they, they hide amongst us. But this is supposed to open your eyes. What kind of man are you? What kind of husband are you? What kind of rich person are you? And you're all rich. Okay? This is the 1% of the world. 
we could talk about first world problems. I have a new first world problem. I was telling my wife about this yesterday. Okay, in, over the summer, when it was like 110 degrees, I went out to my truck here at the end of the day. It was really hot. So I opened all the doors because it was really hot. But I have this little, like, vapor thing, you know, that you shake when you have a cold and you smell it. Okay, well, I'd forgotten that I'd been in the car all day. And so I smelled, like, 110 degrees vapor that just, like, burned the inside of my nose. And I thought, this is the hardest thing that I've had to deal with all summer. Now, if that's true of me, I, I think it's similar of you guys. We don't really have that many difficulties, do we? We are very rich. Now, are we like Nabal or not? Are we open-handed and generous? Or are we, f- right? we get so locked up in our own problems, right? I, I snorted 110-degree vapor rub. <laughs> it kind of was the hardest thing I had to do this summer. Now, this is the typology that's going on here. Who is Nabal? What kind of character is he? Now, first off, it echoes uh, scenes from the account of Jacob in Genesis. Now, from this angle, David's flight from Saul's house corresponds to Jacob's flight from Isaac's house. And this places Nabal in the position of Laban. Nabal was a Calebite, a family line incorporated into the tribe of Judah, of which David belongs, which meant that David and Nabal were related, just as Jacob and Laban were related. David cared for Nabal's flocks and herds, just as Jacob did for Laban's flocks and herds. Neither Jacob nor David received adequate compensation. Remember that story? He's always talking about, why aren't you paying me? Why aren't you paying me? Why aren't you paying me? Now, the Jacob-Laban story entered around, uh, centered around the attainment of a wife and an inheritance from the Lord. And so, too, this story will focus on David attaining his ritual and his inheritance. But there's more. It's also full of Exodus typology. David is in the wilderness like Israel had been, and just like some of the tribes had refused Israel aid, Nabal refuses David aid. Israel requested to pass through Edomite territory, but the Edomites did not permit them in Numbers chapter 20. The Moabites and Ammonites were cursed because they did not meet Israel with food and water as they came up from Egypt, according to Deuteronomy 23. So what company is Nabal keeping? He's refusing to help the true Israel, David, and he shows himself the moral equivalent of an Edomite, a Moabite, and an Ammonite. Three tribes that are not allowed in, the, in, in God's presence, who are not inheritors of the, of the land of promise, who are cursed and wicked and evil. And, and this is how the scripture is supposed to work. Now, can you go out and can you recognize an Anamite, an Edomite, a Moabite? Can you recognize a Nabal when you see them? Can you recognize them if you saw them in the mirror? What kind of people are they? They are the kind of people that refuse to help those who are in need of it. They are the kind of people who are unhospitable. They are the kind of people who do not listen. They are the kind of people who do not care about the law of God. Now, uncharacteristically, David reacts to Nabal's insults by launching an attack with 400 men. It's like he doesn't even, he doesn't even blink. He just says, everybody get your guns. David vowed to wipe out every male in Nabal's house just as Saul had wiped out the priests of Nob. And this is not a good sign. David, on a dime, turns from the good and righteous king in the wilderness to now he's going to go and slaughter a bunch of people who are mean to him. Now, conventional and worldly wisdom, (laughs) wisdom that I fall into far too often myself, suggests that the only way to deal with obnoxious mule heads like Laban is with a gun. Right? Well, if we just shot him, then he wouldn't be here anymore. Right? I don't know how many times we're... (laughs) In my criminal law days, when I'm working in the courthouse, and you see all the expense and trouble that these criminals are putting us to, and I'm like, it costs 13 cents a round. 
I've literally said that before. And, and, that, and, right, and this is the worldly wisdom that we have. Well, why don't we just deal with this problem by slaughtering them all? In the face of his enemies reviling, David reviles. He returns violence with violence. He gets violence, violent language, and he's like, oh, you're going to go there? Yeah, you're bringing a knife to a gunfight, son. And what we see here is the first time David fails to be a type of Jesus. He's now the anti-type. Right? Just in case you guys were all starting to worry that David had actually been the savior and we missed the boat, he's demonstrating that he has feet of clay. This is why right, the promise of a son who's going to save us from sin carries on after David. You see it here. He is a man of vengeance. He is a man of blood. And he's going to struggle with this his entire life. In fact, later he won't be allowed to build the temple of God because, as God says, you are a man of blood. This is the way to lose a kingdom right here, just as Saul had. Is, it, is, is that what he's going to become now, another Saul? Is he going to become a Nabal himself? What he needs is some intervention. Now, who's going to be the intervention? Well, we turn to 1 Samuel 25, 14 to 17, and this is what we read. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. And we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day. All the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore, know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. (laughs) Jeez. Right? He, he doesn't want to give anything to David because there's servants turning against their masters, and here his servants are turning against him. It's like, talk about a guy who doesn't get the story he's in. The servants, servants of Nabal quickly respond to his foolishness by doing the, the first thing that comes to their mind. Get his wife. <laughs> I wish more people thought this way. Right? Right? What kind of man is this? Where the first thing the servants realize to do is get the dude's wife. He's untrustworthy. He won't listen. We're not even going to try to talk to him because they've been down this road before, right? This is not a man who's just dealing with a little bit of besetting sin. This is a man who is an utter fool. Go and get Mrs. Nabal. Now, it's apparently impossible to talk to him. A man used to to refusing lady wisdom. I'm not going to listen. I don't care. Yada, 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 yada. Leave him alone. I have a party to plan. Now, Abigail hears a report of David's kindness which Nabal failed to do, right? David said, ask your people. Ask your people what kind of guy I am. Abigail listens to the account of her servants as to what kind of man David is and responds. Now, this is where things get really tricky. Super tricky, actually. In conservative circles, what would we expect Abigail to do? What would the average Christian pastor tell Abigail to do? Your, son, your, your husband is a total nincompoop. Your whole house is about to be slaughtered, and you better just respect the unrespectable. Right? You should be silent. I mean, this is the king of Israel. You're not going to go and talk to him, are you? You're supposed to be silent. That's what we would expect from modern circles, isn't it? I mean, the last thing we would expect is Abigail to go take on the king of Israel, right? And this is where Abigail comes onto the scene, and she challenges everything we think we know about biblical male headship. Abigail challenges both what our critics of biblical patriarchy caricature as biblical patriarchy and what so many of us fools caricature as biblical patriarchy. Now, I'm just going to be very clear right out of the gate. 
I'm not for complementarianism. I'm for the biblical patriarchy. I'm just going to show my cards right now. Okay? What the Bible teaches is biblical patriarchy. And we go ham-fistedly and, and we act like Nabals, not realizing that somehow the story of Abigail fits into that. Now, how, though? Right? This is, I want everyone to pay very close attention, ladies and men, because she's going to do things now that if, if I heard about in a counseling session, I would start taking communion away from people. So then I read this story, and I'm like, well, wait a minute now. Hmm. Hmm. This is what happens. Now, this is a long speech. It's the longest speech in the whole thing. And, right, Lady Wisdom, she has a lot to say. This is verses 18 through 31. Now, Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five sayas of parched grain and 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys saying to her young men, go on before me, behold, I come after you. She did not tell her husband Nabal. Wait, what? She's going behind her husband's back? And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. She's meeting him in private, like she's meeting him apart from, okay, anyway. Now David had said, surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned to me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male who pisseth against the wall. Now that's actually what, it doesn't say that in the ESV, but that's what it says in the King James. And I'm saying it on purpose, because we, we try to clean up the Bible in ways we shouldn't. David, the word, of, right, the word of God says, he's going to go down and kill every man that pisseth against the wall. If you can stand up and piss against the wall, you're going to die, which excludes the little kids, apparently. This is not, <laughs> we, we try to clean up the Bible and make it something that it's not. David is not happy, okay? And it sounds real bad. I would not want to be in the ball right now. And yet Abigail is going to go down and stand in front of this train, this freight train. I go on. When Abigail saw David, she hurried. She got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord, whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. Till death does part? Anyway, okay. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living and care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies shall, he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling." And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. 
the practical Abigail realizes what is at stake. Everyone is going to die. She knows who David is. She knows what he's, right? She knows who he is. She knows he's going to be king. Now, was she there in the conversation where God said, I'm going to make you king? No, word has spread, right? He, he is the kind of man who doesn't take the insults of her foolish husband lying down. And, and she's going out not just to save the household of Nabal, but she's going out to save Israel. Far be it from the king to do such a thing that he has planned. She's sparing not only her own household, but the household of God. It's easy to see in Abigail how a woman's gifts may effectively be used in negotiation and diffusing a dangerous situation. Notice what she doesn't do. She doesn't put on armor and take up a sword. She doesn't fight like a man, does she? <laughs> she, she fights with good cooking and reasonableness. Now, that, right, ladies, there you go. Your two greatest weapons. Good food and reasonableness. Common sense. She is a woman who knows wisdom, and she knows wisdom because she knows the Lord, right? Wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. This is a woman who fears the Lord more than she fears Nabal, more than she fears David, more than she fears any man on earth. There is a man at the top, right? There's a masculine identity at the top of the hierarchy for her, and it's God. And everything else is subordinated under that. Now, there's all kinds of other echoes here, again, to help us understand who's who. Like Jacob meeting Esau, who also had 400 men in Genesis chapter 32, Abigail knew that a gift softens wrath. She knew Proverbs 15.1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Like Rachel in Genesis 29.17, Abigail is described as lovely in form. Now, interestingly enough, the word used for intelligent to describe her is also used of David in 18.5. She is David's equal in every way. He's good-looking, she's good-looking. He's wise, she's wise. He's intelligent, she's intelligent. He has met his match. Wisdom comes from fearing the Lord, and that holy fear drives out the fear of defying kings and husbands and makes her bold. She acts quickly and shockingly in complete defiance of her husband. And this is what I'm saying. How do we reconcile this? She goes against his wishes, behind his back, and totally throws him under the bus. Right? There's a dead body under the bus, right? And it's, she's driving it. And then, just for good measure, she backed the bus over him. <laughs> Her husband had refused to share my food and insulted David. But Abigail took a load of food from Nabal's house and brought a blessing. Now, there, there is a question why is all this food ready already? Well, they're, because they're throwing a party. So she goes, and here's all the shearers. They're about to have this big party where her husband's going to do his usual thing and drink too much. And she takes a bunch of it, and she gives it to David. That's why she has it ready at hand. And like Rebecca, another heroic woman who defied her husband's wicked plan, Abigail foils her husband's folly. She stands against him and defies his wishes. She stands on the side of God. She chooses her loyalty to truth and goodness. Now, our understanding of male headship in the home must include this passage. Women like Rebecca and Abigail are great heroes of the faith. And they were heroic precisely when they defied their husbands who defied God. Now, why does this surprise us so much? Right? Didn't the Lord Jesus say, I came not to bring peace but a sword? And, I'm, and, and if you don't love me more than the fam, your family members, I, you have no part with me? Now, ladies, does, <laughs> what if that included your husband? 
What if the person who you had to, uh, had to defy and oppose and choose God over him was your husband? She loves the Lord Jesus more than anyone. This is, this is the kind of wild abandoned of self that the Lord calls women to. Now, again, the biblical standards, male federal headship. Okay, ladies, I don't want you to go home and start treating all your husbands like Nabal's just because you heard this sermon. Let's be very careful. But we have to correct the categories. Right? And, and what, what do they accuse us of? Oh, you guys like patriarchy? So you like women who are silent, women who are mice. That's what you like, church mice, right? Isn't that what most women in our circles are supposed to be, church mice? Now, how often is that accusation actually true? What would you do if you're, if you, <laughs> here's your, you're David and you're fuming and here comes Abigail, your wife, and she addresses you in this fashion? What if you're Nabal and you're, and you're doing all kinds of terrible things that you ought not to do and you find out your wife went behind your back? Now, I learned this actually from Mark Driscoll, believe it or not, but I've had a rule in my household ever since I got married and that is my wife knows exactly who she's supposed to go talk to if I become Nabal. I told her. It's like, listen, I'm not the final authority. And it might come, there might become a day where you have to choose Jesus over me. And when you do, this is who you go talk to. They know it and you know it. And when that happens, I know what's happened. It should be a wake-up call. Now, how many of us address our own authority in this way? Or how many of us men think we are, in fact, the highest authority in the land? Forget Inslee, forget the church, forget my wife, whatever. In this household, I am God. And the world accuses us of such things, and we comply. Oh, yeah you, th- yeah, you don't even know the half of it. My wife can't say boo unless I al- allow her to. In the face of sin, even great sin, a woman's place is what? Silent support, respect, submission, deference. The gospel teaches us, ladies, there is no authority higher in your home than Jesus Christ. Not your husband, not your sons, Jesus Christ. And this ought to, right? And if you fear him, you, you ought to be able to address the sin that you see, whether it's a Nabal or a David, fearlessly, boldly, in a way that honors God, in a way that helps your brothers be the kind of men that God wants them to be. Feminine fortitude begins with the fear of the Lord. Right? And it, she's not wearing armor. She's not wearing a sword. She's not riding a horse. Okay? She's not Joan of Arc. She's doing it like a lady. And what, what, what is difficult about this is because biblical wisdom is always hard. Right? Am I, is my husband an A-ball? Is this, should I go behind his back? It's difficult to determine. But what I want to challenge everyone is that it's possible that it's necessary. And to think otherwise means that you have a serious idolatry problem, husbands, and, th- and that idol is yourself. Right? It doesn't help that the world accuses us of being these kinds of authoritarian jerks and, and it being true. Right? What, I, what we ought to be able to do is like, that's, that's nonsense, what you're saying. Because we're a bulwark around these ladies. They're able to stand up and fear the Lord and obey him no matter what. Right? And they fear him more than they fear me. But that's, that's kind of hard to govern a home where the wife fears God more than you. You want her to fear you. That's how you get her to submit, right? Abigail calls Nabal a son of Belial, a phrase used to describe the worthless sons of Eli. They are cursed men. 
They are opposed to the living God and so must be defied. Defying tyrants in the home is something every wife should embrace. Abigail addressed David with respect, calling him my Lord, which is almost always when a woman says my Lord to a man. In the Old Testament, it's always of her husband. She's giving the t- a title of honor to David that belongs to her husband. Now, what's happening here is Abigail represents the loyal remnant of Israel, the bride who was turning from the fool of a husband, Saul, from a fool of a husband like Nabal, to loyalty to the true son of Israel, the true Israel, the true God. She's, she's saying, I'm no longer with you, Nabal. I'm with David. He is the Lord of Israel, he, and thus the Lord of me. The Lord Jesus Christ, you would say, is the Lord of my household, the Lord of my church, and my Lord, and, and I, my, my loyalty goes to him first. That is what's happening here. Israel is shifting from Saul to David. Now, and David is risking all of that. He's risking all of it because somebody said mean things to him. Somebody didn't show him the respect he thinks he deserves. His ego now is the thing that's going to go down and slaughter a bunch of people. And, and, and this is where I love it. The Lord God is so relentless with us. The first word out of her mouth is mine. She's not asserting ownership. She's taking responsibility. She says, you know what? If I had been there, this wouldn't have happened. If I would have received your people, this wouldn't have happened. She's saying, I am sorry, David. I wasn't there to, to greet your messengers because this whole debacle wouldn't have happened if I was. It's my fault. And I, right? she's saying, there's all your swords. You want to kill someone? You want to blame someone? Blame me. Kill me. She's throwing herself... <laughs> At the mercy of David, she's putting herself out there, taking responsibility not only for her foolish husband, but for the entire household. She is showing the truest kind of love to Nabal and to Israel and to David. It says in Romans chapter 5, verse 7 and 8, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While Nabal is still a fool, she's going to die for him. She's taking the responsibility upon herself. Now, the authors have done something interesting here. They, they, they place David's statement in the middle of this story. And, and, right, they, say what, they tell us what David said. We're going to go down there. We're going to kill every man that pisses against the wall. And then the next thing that happens is she confronts them because they want us to feel this tension. These are a bunch of angry, hungry dudes. Okay? Dudes are scary anyway, generally when they have a sword. But imagine they need a Snickers bar and they have a sword. <laughs> the danger is real. She's all alone. There's no one there to protect her. It's just her. And she gets down off her horse and falls down at his feet, and they could just trample her. They could cut her. They could do whatever they want with her. It's not that long ago in the book of Judges where it was very dangerous to women to, for women to be alone out in the wilderness. She's risking a great deal. She is very brave, and she's taking responsibility. She is fighting like a lady, though. It's not a scene from Braveheart where she goes running down there, right, steals the the horse out from underneath David, takes his spear up, and slaughters 30 people. That's not what she does. She sends food, and then she goes down, and she falls on her face in front of him and speaks reason. Now, if you're a guy, okay, and your blood's up, and you're ready to kill some people, and this beautiful woman comes down and shows you all this deference, you're pretty much going to put your sword away, right? What, what kind, right? And, and we see the heart of David here is that this completely turns his wrath away. 
It completely does. He is a soft-hearted enough man to see his folly. Right? Here is this woman presenting herself to be slaughtered, and he's like, I'm not that guy. And, and it stops his madness. It turns him away. She says, I'm your handmaid, Lord. I'm your handmaid. He can do with her whatever he wants. She has got the upper hand at this point. Now, what she goes on to tell him is this. Don't do this thing. Don't do it because you'll regret it. Don't do it because you'll be haunted by it. Don't do it because you're going to be the king and you don't want blood on your hands. We see the kind of king that you get when he has blood on his hands because that's what Saul is. She's speaking prophetic words. She, she says, you're going to be the king. You're going to be the anointed of the Lord. You're going to ascend the throne, and, and you don't want this dirt on you. You don't want this filth on you. She offers important counsel to would-be Davids. Don't do anything on your way up that will bring you down later. Young men, don't compromise your authority and conscience later by being unfaithful to it now. Right? This is an extraordinarily wise woman. Abigail encourages David to be Christ-like with humility and deference and wisdom and the prophetic word. Ladies, this is your example. This is your example. This is what a godly woman looks like. David is not perfect, and he needs lady wisdom to guide and challenge him, and he responds in a godly way, demonstrating the positive effect of a godly woman. 1 Samuel 25, 32-35. David said, Abigail, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly, by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one man who pisseth against the wall. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. Thanks to Abigail's intervention, David had been reminded of his commitment to live by faith in the Lord God. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day. He sees the hand of God in her coming. Right? He doesn't say, Wait, wait, you're a woman, and I'm an authority. And where do you get off talking to me this way? He hears the wisdom of it. He hears God in her words. He recognizes her as an emissary of the Lord. Now, men, is this how you treat your wives when they address your sin? Thank God he sent you, right? Or is our natural response usually like, woman, (laughs) bake me a cake. How dare you talk to me that way? You're my wife. You're supposed to respect me all the time. What I love about this is he praises her. He praises her. He sees it for what it is. He loves it because he loves the Lord God and he loves the things that God loves. And this is the kind of daughter that God loves. One who fears him more than any man in the world. This defies the distorted view that a woman's place is to be the man's silent cheerleader. Yay! That's enough out of you. To many of us, it's unmanly to be challenged by a woman. We don't like it. Salvation by a skirt? No, thank you. Right? We serve the living God, who's a man. Salvation couldn't come through a skirt. Forget the fact that Mary delivered the Lord into the... Anyway, I digress. (laughs) 
Too many Christian men train their wives and daughters to be quiet little church mice. And that's not what the Lord is calling us. And part of the reason that the snakes are running wild is because we have not prepared our wives and daughters to fight them. And, and I'm including the snakes in your own heart. When our women rise to our folly by deferential challenge, with humble conference, with wise pushback, with a decent meal, they ought to be praised and thanked for it. And what we find out is that wisdom is justified by her fruits. And Abigail's character is confirmed by God, right? Now what we're going to hear, because we may be uncertain as to what's going to happen, God is going to say what he thinks about what's happened. 1 Samuel 25, 36 through 38. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning... When the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. Now, Abigail's mission is successful. We follow her home where we find Nabal too drunk to, to hear any sense. Now, here we see even further Abigail's wisdom. She knows when to speak up and when to be quiet. Right? I'm going to go and talk to David in his wrath, but my drunk husband, I've been there, done that, I'm not going to do it. Right? I'm going to wait until he sleeps it off. She knows when to speak, and she knows when to hold her tongue. She addresses David in his wrath, but refuses to address Nabal in his drunkenness. Now, the next morning, <laughs> Nabal is recovering. Right? There he is with his bottle of aspirin, eating his steak, trying to get over it all. And his wife tells him that he was about to be slaughtered, and that he was only saved by her, who told David what kind of fool he was, who gave him all the stuff he said not to give him. And his heart does what? Turns to stone within him. He sees the kind of man he is. And and what kind of man is he? He's a rock. And that's what he becomes. And the the, the last bit here is all about his heart. His heart turns to stone within him because he is not the kind of man that a woman like Abigail respects. She's not the kind of man she will defend. She's not the kind of man that she will protect in the way that he wants. But what she will protect him. She does love him enough to go and tell David just how stupid he is and how wicked he is and to prevent the very thing that David wanted to do because of his foolishness. Right? And does he rejoice? Does he thank her like David did? No. He, 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 he whittles within himself. Because most men can't handle this kind of salvation from a woman. Most, most men can't handle this kind of <laughs> glorious wisdom from a woman. We shrivel up inside. The brevity of verse 38 is deliberate, as if to say to David, note the simplicity and magisterial ease with which God slaughters your enemies. First up, I made him like a shriveled rock, and then I killed him. Right? That, I mean, that's literally what it says. And it doesn't say that the Lord came through a virus. It doesn't say that the Lord sent an angel. It says God killed him. David, pay attention. Pay attention. God killed your enemy. You did not have to go down there and avenge yourself. The Lord took care of it. Abigail joins those who know and attest that David will be king, as Yahweh had promised. She stands with Jonathan and Saul and challenges her brother to walk faithfully. And her confident word was much needed. From chapters 18 through 23, there are 12 instances in where David has some sort of life-threatening problem, and the Lord delivers him time and time and time again. And what you see here is he is getting wearied of the fight. 
He's weary, and what he needs is a cup of water, and the one who gives it to him is Abigail. She knows. She sees what her brother is struggling with, right? Keep on keeping on, David. Don't turn away from the right path, because you're on the right path, and the Lord will vindicate you, and he will bring you to the place he promised. She is, right? This is nurture. This is feminine nurture. This is wisdom. This is glory. This is feeding him the food that he needs, right? She's not just feeding him food. She's feeding his soul. She's feeding his courage. She's feeding, right, his spirit within him. He needs Abigail's word. Do you need Abigail's word, gentlemen? Abigail, ladies, do you have a word for them? Do you have an encouraging word? Right? You see what your husband's going through. You see what the household is going through. You see, right, the, the path that he's on and how difficult it is. Do you have a word for him, a prophetic word, an encouraging word? Right? Or is your job simply making bread? Raising the babies, teaching them math. What is your responsibility, wives? Abigail's glory is to be God's messenger, a peacemaker, a faithful bride, even when the men are struggling to be Christ-like or are, in fact, antichrists. She risks, right? He risks the whole household, and she saves it. David is risking the whole kingdom of Israel, and she saves it. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Now, this is my point of this verse. Okay, this is Isaiah, a man, speaking of the Messiah who is a man. Now, ladies, how often have you read this verse, or how often do you read verses like this, and you think that the boys are talking? Do you think the boys are talking to one another? Well, God the Father is talking through the prophet to men. How often do you read this verse in other verses like it, and you think the Lord my God is talking to me? Is it a boy, the boy's faith, or is the Christian faith your faith? Do you have a place in it? Do you have a place in the kingdom of God? Is Jesus your Savior, or is it just, about, is it just a conversation between the boys? There is no doubt that Abigail is the primary servant in arresting David from an impetuous disaster. David acknowledged as much. Yahweh had sent Abigail to meet him, and she thankfully talked sense to him. And throughout the story, Abigail vindicates the narrator's judgment of her. She is decisive. She is resourceful in action. She is perceptive in circumstances. She's courageous in danger, engaging in demeanor. She's theological, rational, and convicting in argument, and shrewd in suggestion. She doesn't leave the whole thing to the boys. Clearly, Abigail is the Lord's stop sign, mercifully placed in David's path and in Nabal's path. And ladies, this is your calling. Okay, you're not just baby factories. It's not just a conversation between the boys. The living God is your God. Now, he doesn't want you to be like the boys. He has enough of those. He wants you to be ladies. He wants you to be godly ladies. He wants you to be Abigail's. He wants you to know when to follow your husband and when to oppose him. She wants you to, he wants you to know when to stand up to authority in your life when it's going astray. And he wants you to do it a certain way. Right? Remember weeks ago? I'm not talking anymore about whether we're going to fight. I'm talking about how. Ladies, this is how you fight. This is how you kill, kill snakes. 
Now, I always worry about the wrong person taking the wrong lesson from the wrong verse. It's like a way of life. It's a, big, it's a real danger as a, as a pastor. Now, some of you ladies need to stop talking and let your husbands lead. Some of you need to speak up and call your husband to a higher calling. Some of you need to do both. The areas and the various areas in your marriage. Don't be a doormat and don't be a henpecking harpy. Right? This is, he has not called you to either of those things. Be lady wisdom. Teach your daughters to be lady wisdom. Subtleness and humility, spiritual and physical beauty, logical arguments, and abundance of good food, principled holiness, these are the feminine fortitude in action. Now, whether you are dealing with a man like David or Nabal, let Abigail be your standard for fighting like a godly woman. And amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, for, um, for Abigail and her ministry, Lord, to David and to Nabal. I pray, Lord, as we go from here, that we would consider these things, that we would consider how we fall short of the standard, Lord God, and how Christ came to save us, to instruct us, to teach us, to equip us to be obedient sons and daughters of the living God. I pray for the ladies here. You know the circumstances that they are in. You know um, in what way they are failing to be like Abigail. And I pray, Lord God, that you would fill their hearts with a fear of your holiness and goodness and beauty, that they may fear no men, that they may walk in uprightness and wisdom and diligence, like your daughter Abigail. In Jesus' name we pray, and amen.